right, if you got your Bibles, Revelation chapter 9 is where we're at. We're jumping into the fifth and sixth trumpet judgment. We're going to be reading, um, actually, chapter 8, verse 13, and we're going to read through the whole chapter. I, again, like, as we jump into the text, like, you're, you're going to see all this kind of crazy imagery at play. Uh, and it's important that we slow down enough to consider what this imagery really is all about. Like I mentioned last week, these images are not to kind of provoke this conspiracy theory, code-cracking uh, kind of mentality. We, we are actually supposed to be pushed back into the text of Scripture to see what these images actually really mean. When John is writing this, as John is seeing this, this is all imagery that is borrowed from past Scripture. So we see these images again and again throughout Scripture, all then depicting something of God's judgment upon the world, but also then him bringing all things to a final place of renewal. That's the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 8, verse 13 is where we're going to begin. We're going to go through the full chapter, chapter 9. The word of the Lord writes, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star as it was fallen from heaven to earth. And he, this star, was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed, these locusts were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them and torment. And their torment was like the torment, once again, of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, these locusts were like the horses, were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have asked, they, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. 
So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lions' heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or the sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. All right, take a breath, right? What in the world is all of this? Well, um, when I was in fifth grade, um, the teacher called up my parents saying, I'm seeing Dan squint in the back row of the classroom. You may want to get him in to an eye doctor and check out what's going on. And of course, you know, as I get home and I'm hearing about this, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't want to go to an eye doctor. I'm just fine. I'm just fine. Even as, even as a fifth grader, you know, I thought I play basketball fine. I run around just fine. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I see just fine. Well, from fifth grade all the way up to the time in which I was about to get my learner's permit, which was about 15 years old, I kept on denying the fact that I had anything wrong with my eyes. But when it came down to it, I remember actually driving in the car and thinking, you know, I'm about to get my learner's permit to begin driving, and yet it's at nighttime, it's raining, and I, like, my dad's driving at this point, but I, I cannot see a thing. It's just all the, the lights are just kind of reflecting off the raindrops, and it's just this blur of, of, of light and reflection that, to the point where I can't, I can't even make out the lines in the road. From fifth grade to about 15 years old, there I am with this struggle of I. And I, I, I'm in denial, right? There's just no way. So finally, it's like, all right, mom, you, wanna, you want me to do this thing? You've wanted me to do this thing? Okay, I'll go to the eye doctor. And sure enough, you know, he stands me in front of this goofy chart and says, well, you know, read, read the letters. And it's like, I don't, are we supposed to be able to read those letters? I, I can't read those letters. I got the, the E. The E is always first. You know, you can almost guess at it and get it right. And so he finally, you know, they sit you in the goofy chair and throw the thing over your face and one or two, one or two. And all of a sudden, whoa, I began to recognize that I have had a problem all along, right? I wasn't seeing clearly. And now all of a sudden, I'm stepping into this kind of new sense of freedom in life. The world has just changed for me, right? Now I see the basketball hoop in clarity. I see the little square in the backboard, right? I see it clearly when once I, 
I thought I saw it, but it was a blur. When it comes to the book of Revelation, as confusing as it can be, this apocalyptic literature is actually intended to take care of the blur. It's supposed to actually bring heaven's perspective on our earthly experience so what we see in this world is actually informed correctly and not just put on us to figure things out. It's so that we're not living just in the blur of our earthly experience, but heaven's perspective is now being brought to bear. It's heavenly spectacles that Revelation provides us that we can put on our, on our eyes in order to rightly see the world around us. And one of the ways, especially that our Western world remains in the blur and confused, is in regard to this topic of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare refers to spiritual conflict at work within the world. It is something unseen, or it's behind this physical world, but it plays itself out in this physical world. It's like the physical world has become something of the battlefield of heaven. But it's this confusing reality in our day that takes on many kind of shapes. For the modern mind, the humanist, the naturalist, spiritual warfare is quite a ridiculous notion, right? That's on one hand, and yet on the other hand, you have the spiritualist, you have the mysticist, where there, there's a very strong view of spiritual influences. Um, but it's left kind of unhinged, that all kind of spirituality is good spirituality, so let's just take it for what it might provide us. Now, unfortunately, between these two perspectives, the church tends to pull back and forth between the two. So the church will either argue away spiritual experiences to maintain some sort of kind of naturalistic, humanistic perspective. Let's just boil everything down to science and equations. Or, this is so true, or Christians go the other way. Let's just go the way of spiritualism. All spiritualism is good spiritualism, so whatever helps me in this life is what helps me. Jesus is just another piece of the broad scope of spiritualism that we can just kind of take in. Both are incredible errors. Both leave us in the blur, if you will. We got to put these corrective lenses on our faces. We got to step out of the blur and let heaven kind of shine some perspective on our earthly experience when it comes to spiritual warfare. So, from Revelation chapter 9, we find two main ideas. First is this spiritual warfare is real. Spiritual warfare is real. The Bible inescapably describes the reality of spiritual warfare from the beginning of the pages of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. It's replete with spiritual warfare. And the Bible is unapologetic about it all. It describes the conflict of our world in part as a spiritual conflict. 
It's to say that you won't fully grasp the problems of this world without owning to the fact of spiritual warfare. And Revelation chapter 9 emphasizes this fact all the more. So, for instance, John will give 20 verses to these two trumpets describing what is an increase in spiritual warfare, 20 verses given to describe this versus the previous six verses that he gave to the first four trumpet judgments. There's something of the reality of spiritual warfare that he is emphasizing, right? And this emphasis is actually given strength by chapter 8, verse 13. It begins with a triad of woes. Woe, 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 declared by this soaring eagle over these earth dwellers. This is just another literary feature that emphasizes the intensity of what is to come and therefore the absolute necessity to take warning. So this triad of woes will correspond with the next three trumpets that we'll see. But they all emphasize spiritual warfare. Eugene Peterson says it this way when it comes to these three woes. He says, God is just finding new ways, new vivid pictures to penetrate our defensive deafness. We don't want to think, oftentimes, that spiritual warfare is a real thing. Tim Keller. I'm going to get into some kind of like heady stuff. Hang with me. Tim Keller quotes Andrew Del Banco. He's a scholar at Columbia University who wrote a book called The Death of Satan, where he argues that a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. He goes on then to argue that many secular people understandably attribute all human cruelty to psychological deprivation or social conditioning. And in so doing, as he says, trivialize the terrible wrongs that people are capable of. Do you get what he's saying? He's a secularist, scholar at Columbia University, and what he's saying is that our modern explanation for the evil of man is wanting. You can't take the evil of man and just chalk it up to some sort of psychological need or some sort of social conditioning. It, it's something deeper. There's something more at play in this world than just basic pathologies, therapies, and just kind of correcting the physiology of someone. There's something deeper and even as a secular individual, he's saying, we, we got to get away from just thinking that we're just a, a bunch of chemicals bound together, that if we just correct the chemicals and if we just get the right education and if we just have the right systems that govern our humanity, then everything will be okay. He says, no, 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 there is something far deeper to the problem of man. But on the flip side, although that may be the case, Neither then does this permit the Christian in particular an open-door policy to spiritualism, to feast on the buffet of spiritualism that our immediate world just constantly presents before us. I have had a number of counseling experiences where professing Christians 
have sought wisdom and blessing and connection with the dead from Wicca, psychics, and drug-induced experiences. Spiritual warfare is real, but don't forget, it's spiritual warfare. There is an enemy who presents himself, as scripture says, as an angel of light, but he is a liar and a liar from the beginning, and his aim is to kill, steal, and destroy. To just openly give yourself to spiritualism is like stepping into a a cage with a lion, just assuming, oh, he'll be nice. Or you've seen those Yellowstone pictures of people, look at this big furry bison. I want to just go, you know, stroke this thing. He's so cuddly, so wonderful. And what happens? Every year, there's multiple people who are brought to their death because they toy with these beasts. That's what spiritualism apart from Christ is. You're dancing with the devil. It's warfare. Scripture doesn't present it any other way. It's not a buffet. It's warfare. I'll get to this point again. Spiritualism apart from Christ is demonism. How's that? Is that clear? Spiritualism apart from Christ is warfare. It's death, ultimately. Now, Notice then how John begins to describe the reality of this spiritual warfare. In Trumpet 5, for instance, we have verses 1 and 2. John sees a star, and the star has fallen to earth. Presumably, it's the image of Satan himself. He is described as a star in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. Almost the exact wording of this, this fallen star is utilized in Luke chapter 10, where the disciples are commissioned to do deliverance ministry, and they come back saying, we saw Satan fall like lightning. Most likely, this is Satan here. He is a star who has fallen, right? And it's then this angel, Satan, who is given a key to open up the shaft of the bottomless pit, or the word that's used is the abyss. It's an image of this subterranean kind of prison. It's where, if you remember, Legion in the story of the demoniac. It's these demons that beg Jesus not to cast them into the abyss, the bottomless pit. It's where 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, or Jude chapter 6, describe the place where many demons have already been bound. But it's here where this shaft is now opened for a time. Because then by the end of Revelation, we find that Satan is finally and fully bound and all who follow him are cast into this abyss. It is a terrifying concept. Don't get confused by the imagery. We, we, we could say this is hell itself. That, that, that's kind of our vernacular, if you will. But it's imagery that is to... It, it is to stare you down. It is to grab your attention in some ways. But it's, it's imagery that is to communicate a terrifying concept. But here in judgment, the abyss is opened and what comes from it? It's imagery that is actually used in the book of Joel. He takes 
the literal plague of the Exodus where locusts come to ravage the land. And he uses that very literal image to depict the political powers of his own day who were like, as he says, armies of locusts coming to afflict God's people in the exile account. And now John is picking up on this same imagery to speak of the spiritual warfare that's going to be unleashed upon the world. Is this literal locust? Probably not. Is this just a recapitulation of the Exodus account, another plague of locusts? Probably not. What John is reading and the imagery that he is using is actually he's going back to Joel and utilizing the imagery as Joel uses it. Joel takes something literal to make figurative, to describe these political powers that are afflicting God's people. And he will use then words of, of the demonic, that these governments, these political powers are demonically inspired to bring affliction upon God's people. And now John is borrowing that language and saying, yes, these locusts are those who will come to afflict the world, perhaps political powers that may be. Now then, if trumpet five isn't devastating enough, it's trumpet six, where we see verse 14, again, spiritual warfare, four bound angels. They are demons that are released from the great river, the Euphrates. The Euphrates River is a boundary marker within the Old Testament that spoke of the political powers through, that throughout history devastated God's people. Where did Babylon come from? Where did Assyria come from? Where did Medo-Persia come from? They came from across the Euphrates. Once again, this idea then is, is to say that most likely these are political powers that are demonically inspired, coming to wreak havoc, not just on God's people, but on the world. John is describing something of demonically inspired political powers that are unleashed to destroy. It's important to recognize that this warfare, this spiritual warfare, is organized warfare. In trumpet, chapter, in trumpet 5, verse 7, these locusts were like horses prepared for battle. They're organized. They're ready to roll. And notice the description of this army. It's like a bouquet of images that don't make sense uh, when you put it all together. If you would draw the picture here, it just doesn't make any sense. But the images individually are to communicate something about the nature of this army and the organization of this warfare. These individuals wear a crown and have human faces. It's to say they come across with human nobility. There's someone to look up to. They have hair like women, yet teeth like a lion. That is, they come with this human nobility, but they come to seduce and ultimately to destroy. And they have breastplates of iron, and, and, and their wings are the sound of many chariots. That's to say that they are impenetrable and intimidating. It's all organized warfare. There's a method to this madness. They work to attract you. Oh, it's nobility. They are wise. They wear the crown. They work to attract you. And when they have you, they keep you with intimidation in order ultimately to bring upon you destruction. 
This is the army that John is describing here. And verse 11, a king, presumably Satan, is leading this army. His name is Apollyon. His name is destruction, in other words. Satan is one whom Jesus will say has come to steal, kill, and Apollyon destroy. It's organized warfare. In trumpet 6, verse 16, there are four angels that comprise something of an army of 200 million soldiers. It's probably not a literal number. It probably is just communicating something of the incredible magnitude of this unstoppable force. And they come to unleash these three plagues, fire, smoke, and sulfur, that relate to the color of their breastplates. It's all imagery of judgment. It's all imagery of destruction. And it should bring to mind something of Sodom and Gomorrah, fire and brimstone that was brought upon them. This is certain and sudden judgment. And again, the horses uh, have heads like lions. And in verse 19, the power of the horses is in their mouth and in, in their tails, which are like serpents, they, they wound. It's imagery that once again refers to this flattering talk which distracts in order that the serpent might stun you so that the lion might devour you, right? It's all of the, it's this play saying, I have something to offer you. I have words of wisdom for you, which only keep you long enough to be stunned and ultimately devoured by this spiritual entity, this warfare. It's organized warfare. And the question is, what's, what's their destruction really going to be like? Well, trumpet 5, verse 3 and 5, refer to the power of the scorpion. It's not given a whole lot of detail other than that it will ultimately lead to a psychological torment where people will wish for death, but will not be able to attain it. This is a idea that is kind of peppered throughout scripture. We see this in Elijah's life when he's being chased by Jezebel. He's desiring death, but can't attain it. We see this in Job where he's suffering physically and has lost his family, and he wants to die. We see this in Jeremiah's life where he sees the pain of God's people, and he, he, he wants to die. He wants to be done. He wants to hang it up, so to speak. And, and this is the idea here that people will feel the pressures of life in such a unique way that they will long to die, but they will not be able to. It's psychological torment that is brought upon them. So that's trumpet five. But then this destruction and for trumpet six will be these plagues that are brought upon a third of humanity. A third of humanity will die. It's all to say Spiritual warfare is real, and over time it will intensify, and therefore some sort of unhinged spirituality, spirituality that is apart from Christ, is an all-out organized warfare to deceive you, to enslave you, to intimidate you, ultimately to destroy you. 
Again, spirituality apart from Christ is not a buffet for you. It's organized warfare against you. This idea that all religion is God's religion, that all roads lead to the same place, that all truth just kind of is is for your good is absolutely false and actually proves the reality of spiritual warfare. If we're really in warfare, you would expect counterfeits. You would expect false saviors. You would expect a plethora of options. The enemy is bringing about a thousand different religious perspectives and philosophies and ideologies to gain your attention, so ultimately you remain blind to Christ. It's his way to deceive you then to keep you, to keep you with intimidation, and ultimately to destroy you. Spirituality apart from Christ, once again, is not a buffet for you. It's an organized warfare against you. The fact that this world provides endless offers of spirituality does not evidence the fact that all roads lead to God, but that spiritual warfare, rather, is real. There is so much more to say there. we got to move on. Second, and more brief, spiritual warfare is not only real, but as you consider Revelation chapter 9, you cannot read these two trumpet judgments and not see something utterly astonishing, and it's this, that spiritual warfare ultimately serves God's sovereign purposes. Martin Luther, he said it so well, he says, the devil is God's devil. Like we have said before, spiritual warfare is not even a fight. It's not yin and yang. It's not equal powers going against one another. There is God and there is everything else. And even everything else that rivals against God actually only serves God's purposes. And Satan and his organized warfare, even when it's unleashed, still serves God's purposes purposes. This has been true throughout Scripture. Just think about it for a moment. In the Old Testament, God gives Satan the ability to tempt Job, but in the the end, Job is sanctified. He's made more godly. He's seen in the end of the story actually repenting. That is, he is drawing near to God actually in greater faith than what he first had. Satan, in that sense, has only served to advance God's purposes. What about in the New Testament? In 1 Corinthians 5, there is a sexually corrupt man who calls himself a Christian, but is persistently unrepentant. The Apostle Paul says, Give this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that he might be saved. It's to say, treat this confessing believer as an unbeliever. That is, remove him from the grace of the community so that Satan might have his way with him. And as Satan has his way with him, the point is that he might open his eyes to repent and return to the Lord. 
in 2 Corinthians, the second letter that's sent to the church in Corinth. In chapter 2, it seems as though this man actually repents. Paul says, affirm this erring brother. It seems as though that Satan had his way with this man and it opened up his eyes to actually turn back to Christ and truly repent of his sin. Satan will only serve to advance God's purposes, right? Or, or, or ultimately, in, in these examples, we can look to the cross. Have you ever wondered who killed Jesus? Did Judas kill him? Did, did the Pharisees or high priests, did they, did they kill Jesus? Did, did the crowd crucify him, crucify him? Did, did they kill Jesus? Did Pilate kill Jesus? Did the Roman soldiers kill Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Before we can ever even get to answering those particular questions, we have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that talks about how the serpent, Satan himself, would bring a death blow to the Messiah figure. So was it corrupt religiosity? Was it corrupt politics? Was it the greed and envy of the one and the many? Yes, but at the heart, it was spiritual warfare. It was demonically inspired. And to the point, this spiritual warfare only brought about the greatest act of God's redemptive purposes. You see, even Satan will conspire to work against God through various means, but he can only further God's sovereign purpose. It's why then, uh, in, in Isaiah 53, verse 10, we can know it was actually the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. The devil, in other words, is God's devil. He can work in terror, but he can only do so to ultimately serve God's sovereign purposes. God will take what he intends for evil and make it for good. Here, Revelation chapter 9 is no exception to that principle. In, in, in trumpet number 5, verse 1, the angel Satan is given a key. He is given permission, just like in the story of Job, he is given permission to go about tormenting others. It comes only by divine permission. And in verses 4 through 6, this divine permission has determined limits. Satan, in other words, is on a leash in Revelation 9, and he can't harm the grass of the earth, he can't harm the green plants, he can't harm the trees. And he was only allowed to torment people for five months. And he couldn't torment those who had been sealed by God. And he could not kill. This is divine permission with limits. Same for trumpet six. The four bound angels, these demonic entities, are released according, again, to the time, the hour, the month, the year that they were prepared for. There's a plan in all of this chaos. And again... They can only work within the limits that they are given to kill a third of humanity. This divine permission has determined limits. Now, you may be sitting back saying, all right, Dan, if God has permitted these awful things to happen, I still don't see how that's bringing about any kind of good. I hope you're thinking that at this point. 
And the fact is, is that even through terror, even through hardship, even through judgment, God has redemptive purposes at work. Remember last week we saw that God's judgment is intended to work man's repentance. When God gives leash to the enemy, what is he doing but actually allowing then man to experience the futility, the very emptiness of giving himself to any other gods than to Yahweh God. To build his life on any other gods than Yahweh God's is sinking sand. It's emptiness. And what God is doing with these judgments, even when it comes to spiritual warfare, is he's given Satan leash to actually bring people... To to, it's intended to open their eyes, that they would see, truly, the, the weakness of all the things that they've built their life on, that it cannot last, it cannot satisfy, it cannot give them the significance, the security, and the worth that they truly need. It's always run into the next thing, and to the next thing, and to the next thing, and to the next thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll satisfy my hearts with all these earthly things, and I'm going to go to the next thing, and I'm going to go to the next thing, and go to the next thing, and God says, I'm going to release judgment. I'm going to give Satan some leash. Why? So that people, yes, would be brought to their senses to recognize that any spirituality apart from Jesus is demonism and destruction. Wake up, he is saying. He is using tough love, yes, to open up the eyes of mankind. Wake up, put the heavenly spectacles on and see what's going on in this world. And just, this is an aside, but just so you know, it seems as though when it comes to these trumpets and these, these, these seals and these bowls that we'll see, that these are all patterns in human history. They're patterns. They're patterns of tribulation and judgment that we, we see in the Old Testament, that we see in the New Testament, that we see in, in the early church, that we see throughout church history. But what's being said here is these same tribulations, these same patterns of spiritual warfare even, are something that we're going to experience in our day, and ultimately we'll see it intensified until the return of Christ. So the very principles at work here to say, Spiritual warfare is real. It's so relevant to us. It's going to intensify. We will feel this more and more within our context and in our culture. We're going to feel it more and more and more. Spiritual warfare is real, but we have to remember, put those heavenly spectacles on and remember that spiritual warfare ultimately will work. It'll accomplish, it'll serve God's sovereign purposes. It's intended for mankind to wake up, to see the mercy of his God. Now, look at verse 20 and 21. We know that the judgment of God is intended to work man's repentance. But this is where things are stunning. Because you see all of this chaos. You see all of this organized destruction. And you would think people would be opening their eyes to the reality of what's happening. But instead, what do they do? 
they actually, verses 20 and 21, they actually continue worshiping the very things that are destroying them. They actually fail to repent. They actually fail to see the mercy of God. They fail to see the beauty of the risen Lamb who lived for them, died for them, and was raised for them. The one who calls out to them in mercy, come to me for life and life eternal. And instead what they do is they give themselves eternally to destruction. They remain hard-hearted. That's why C.S. Lewis says one day hell will be ultimately locked from the inside. People so given to their own self-determined ways and desires that they will say, I want nothing of God. I'd rather face the destruction of my ways than to the life and peace of a Savior. God unleashes Satan upon humanity on one hand to reveal what will be the true nature of man's hearts, but also then to warn man before his time is too short. It's a warning here. The intensification of these circumstances will come one day. Man will be so hard-hearted that he will continue giving himself to the very things that are destroying his life. We already see this in our world now. Just not going to let go. I'm going to give myself to that cycle of addiction. I'm going to give myself to that cycle of destruction, I'm going to go back, I'm going to go back as a dog returns to its vomit, so the fool returns to his folly. Yeah, it's destructive. It's killing me. But I'm going back to it again. Jesus is saying, before time comes of the, the hard-heartedness of man, where he, that becomes a theme that is so prevalent, he says, take the warning now and repent. May it be that Satan's purposes serve God's sovereign activity ultimately by seeing you cast yourself on the mercy of God rather than being destroyed in judgment. Think about it. You will glorify God either in judgment or you will glorify God in his mercy. He will be glorified in bringing perfect justice. And should we not come to Christ and cast ourselves upon his mercy? He doesn't even say, okay, here's a bunch of religious stuff you have to do. It's free. It's a gift. He holds it out. Come, take. No, I want to pursue these things. I want to give myself to these things. These things that are destroying me that will ultimately lead to my destruction. He's saying, come to Christ, cast yourself on the mercy of Christ, because you will either glorify God by casting yourself upon his mercy or by ultimately suffering his judgment. The question is, what will it be? This is a text of warning to us, saying, throw yourself upon the mercy of the risen Lamb. Allow him to give you the grace to break the cycle of destruction. Allow him to bring grace to your life that could silence the enemy. For he who is 
in you is greater than he who is in the world. Right? It's to invite him in to see the cycle of this bondage, this intimidation undone. Will you cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ? Folks, when it comes down to it, we need to kind of end where we started. The book of Revelation is to provide heavenly perspective for our earthly experience. We are to put the lenses on to view our earthly experience correctly and in so doing run to Jesus as our only hope in life and in death. Let's pray. God, we ask for your help now, even as folks are listening in, whether it's online or in person here, Lord, we, we know that the enemy would want to work to confuse your mercy. We know that he would want to work to get in the way of us coming to faith in you. Lord, we know he would want to work to keep us from repenting, from turning from our way of life to trusting in the Savior. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would grant sight. Pray that you would grant a grace to see new life brought to uh, individuals' hearts. And, and maybe, it's that, maybe it's that we've come to faith in you, but now over time we've, we've, we've grown kind of something distant to you. So God, I pray that you give us eyes, draw us back to you, draw us into your family so that our lives ultimately glorify your mercy versus your judgment. So we confess even right now that the enemy, he is real and he is active, even in our midst. We are fools to think that even as those who profess faith, that we don't suffer from the affliction of the enemy. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Lord, we pray that you would grant us something of sight, God, even right now, I pray that you would shine your light on darkness. Spiritual warfare is real. The enemy is at work. Holy Spirit, bring the darkness into the light, we pray. Has no place. He has no place here. He has no place with your people. So in Jesus' name we pray for darkness to be brought into light.
Now, Lord, we pray that you would grant us something of discernment in this coming week. Give us discernment to see heavenly perspective to recognize the tactics of the enemy, the one who would work through many means to distract your people. The one who would work through many means to keep many from coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus. So Lord, light, light our path, give us direction, give us insight, discernment. Lord, I pray even for the gift of discerning of spirits, that that would be a gift that we as a church function in. To be able to discern your work versus the enemy's work. Your truth versus the lies. Your light versus all those counterfeit lights Satan would bring to us. God, make us a people of repentance and glorify you in your mercy. Give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.
you have questions about spiritual warfare, I know it's a goofy subject, um, but I would love to interact. We, we merely kind of touched on the surface of all that scripture has to say about a real war that we're all in. We're all in it. We're in it. No one is the exception. We're all in this warfare trying to navigate through, but Jesus is the one who ultimately leads us home. So I just want to end then by Jude verse 24. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. You guys are dismissed.